Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next edition of the Sports Pro Sports Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead, joined, as always, by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Now, Nick, we're not too far away from October. For me, that means fall. Um, I've seen recently the return of the pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks that has many people excited. So, Nick, is there anything in particular that, you know, the fall season that you look forward to every year? Oh, well, I just feel it's on the downwards trajectory to, to winter, which is, uh, I guess, me in a bit of a negative uh, headspace. Uh, although I, and I had to try and explain to my kid uh, yesterday about the fact that um, when I'm in Australia, we do when we celebrate Christmas, there's no snow, there's no, it's actually hot. And she's, he's asking me questions about what happens with Santa coming down the chimney and all these sorts of questions about the snow. I'm like, oh, I can't really answer these things. There's too many questions. So that's what I start thinking about now. It's Christmas time already. I've got to start getting plans together, thinking about what I'm going to buy the kids, uh, all those sorts of things. So I'm, uh, I'm, my head's all over the place at the moment and I'm trying to get some plans together on holidays and so forth, but nothing's, nothing's set in stone. Yeah, well, the easy answer would be for me to say football, but we're not going to go that route. For me, Nick, I'm I'm not good with hot weather. So for me, the thing I look most forward to when it comes to fall is I can get out my collection of hoodies. I love just wearing my hoodies. It's the perfect time, perfect weather. But like you, I also start to think about the holidays. But as an American, I start to think about Thanksgiving. Um, I always have some of my American football coaches around. I invite the American students that are you know, separated from their family. So I have to start thinking about my menu and it's, you know, not too far along till I have to start thinking about buying a big turkey. Um, so yeah, we do have similar mindsets when we get into that fall season, but I'm, I'm always been Thanksgiving over Christmas kind of guy. But no, Thanksgiving's a bigger deal than Christmas, isn't it, in the US? Is that right? I suppose it's subjective and who you are, but for me, I love food, I love football, and you know, I'm certainly happy to have a beer. So those are the three components of Thanksgiving. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's people that definitely prefer Christmas over Thanksgiving, but not this guy. Good stuff. Well, uh, I had to call you out on something as well. You made a, you made a, an error at the start. You said Sports Pro Sports Podcast instead of oh, uh, Stream gosh, Time Sports. Oh gosh, it's because I was thinking about Stream Time Sports, Nick. Yes. I got it right the first time and I've yeah. messed it up the second time. And you time. didn't I'll pick it up, it. which is even better. So I can hold that against you now for the next time we do all this All right, one. all right. We can't be perfect as much as we strive to. So today we are joined by a special guest, Artie Dabas, who is the Chief Media Officer at Formula E. Artie, you've got a bit of a extinguished, or sorry, distinguished background, multiple different places, and we are hoping, yeah, extinguish is a bad way. And I'm not off to a great start today, <laughs> Nick, but this is the beauty of podcasts because I will shout out the Sports Pro Podcast, which is, Nick, you and I like to show our flaws. We like to, you know, show that we are human beings. It's okay sometimes we make those mistakes. I hope George and Tom learn to embrace that as well. But Artie, you know, we're going to go through a couple of different topics. Topics, but perhaps maybe just give yourself a bit of an introduction to our audience. Yeah, so uh, I think we need to talk about extinguishing uh, media rights strategies soon. <laughs> so that was a good introduction. Thank you for that. Uh, actually, talking about holidays, I got thinking about October as Diwali period in India. So I get really excited about October. And, you know, it's a festive period, lots of different religions and holidays. But uh, the introduction to me is that I am chief media officer. Sometimes I call myself chief media officer, depending on the media deals I'm doing, you know, cheaper chief media officer. Uh, but my role, I've spent about 25 years in the industry. I mean, close to 25. I like to be older than I am. And worked across content and media at a broadcaster agency, agencies where I started, then broadcaster and then rights, rights holder owner. And different rights owners, actually, I was thinking about this, you know, when somebody asked me last week, and the first one, traditional rights owner, you know, very uh, governing body, but at the same time, also promoter of high revenue events, right? So it's it's a combination of two, a bit like FIFA, right? Like it's uh, it's similar. 
and then uh, juxtaposition that with another kind of rights holder that's fast-paced, investor-led board, you know, growth-growth, commercial-led, you know, it's not about grassroots sports, but um, so I think very different and different sets of challenges. Um, and ultimately, how do you use your products and content and sporting formats to drive value, enterprise value, stakeholder value? I think that's the game we are all in. You know, we can have different job titles. So that's what I've been on a journey on. It's been 25 years. Lots has changed. Lots has not changed. You know, we said linear television is dead, but it's still giving the valuations, you know, for sponsors. So I think, uh, and lots of things came and they've gone, you know, 4K and all those technology things. So uh, it's been a fascinating journey. And I'm quite excited actually this year because uh, I'm going back to India in a week's time with my daughter. I'm taking her to the World Cup and thinking about the 2011 World Cup. What a free experiment at, you know, that was in India. So, yeah, it's been, uh, I've enjoyed my journey in sport. And um, let's see what the next 25 years have uh, in store. Did you ever wear um, 3D glasses uh, to watch any of the live, live sport? I went into pubs. I went and been into pubs in London where they had it on and people were wearing them. I just thought, this, this does not look right. This can't work. I wasn't sure whether it was an ICC event. And if it was, you know, I probably did the right deal. So this was, but there was 3D <laughs> cinema screenings of some matches. Maybe it was mm. IPL, not uh, cricket event, uh, ICC events, but there was. And, but I was never, I never wore them. Never. I've only worn them in amusement parks with my daughter, you know. But that makes sense. I think the cinematic experience is a great way to do it. It's a great idea and great uh, deal, uh, Artie. Um, but you know, I remember talking to, I think we spoke to uh, Andreas Hayden, one of the first pods we did, and he was talking about, because there was a the big conversation around VR and headsets and 3D and having to put something on your face to watch experience and the scalability of that. It's never going to be that mainstream if you've got to wear more lots of equipment um, but anyway i digress uh, i'm not to get too nostalgic on technologies and innovations that we've seen come and go well it would be interesting because you know we're going to talk about sort of the evolutions of the space and i think even the movie theater you know not to get too far away from sports it feels like they've also possibly been equally um hurt by streaming and you know more movies going directed to streaming platforms and if it weren't for oppenheimer and barbie would anybody have gone to the movie theaters this year so maybe perhaps another industry we can touch on and you know maybe they'll bring back more sporting events there to you know bring back that uh, brick and mortar experience but you know what, Chris, I think that is actually a great example for the sports industry because what, from what I've seen, I've watched it from arm's length, what's happened in the cinema space. And what you've seen is those big events, those big blockbuster movies are actually getting incredible audiences to go to the cinema still. They're, they're the needle movers. They're getting audiences to go. Outside of that, that's where the challenge is to get people going on a consistent basis to build that behavior and habit. I think sometimes we've seen that in a bit of sport, right? We've seen the sports rights deals go up and up and up in India and in a Premier League and so forth in the IPL. But all the other sports typically, which we'll obviously dig into a little bit in this conversation, have had a real challenge to differentiate and get those rights deals in place because they are getting audiences at scale, but it's not the same, not quite the same thing. So it feels like that events-based um, inertia that you see in the industry, industry and indeed in society does really transfer into the live sports space as well. Well, actually, Nick, that does feel like a really nice segue for the first question I was gonna was gonna ask to to you, Artie, which is, you know, Formula E. We'd probably, you know, categorize that in the disruptor sport bracket. So, how do you view? And I, we'll we'll start almost um, very um, top level and we'll keep working more granular as we go. But how would you sort of evaluate different opportunities that are associated, particularly when it comes to like OTT and direct to consumer, um, alongside with the traditional linear broadcast? 
Yeah, I mean, um, it's a great question. And actually, every time I read some articles, you know, um, in the sports media or sports pro, actually, you know, I, I read about the deal and I see, okay, what have they done? Why have they done this? Because everything is about aligning to a strategy, whether it's short or long or immediate, whether there's revenue or reach, I think. But, you know, what I, what I have learned is that it's okay to observe what others are doing, but it's hard to just, you know, copy and just pick out the same because the journey of each sport is different. And I think um, the, the commercial conditions and what are the different assets of different sports and stakeholder groups are so different, you know. So even a Formula E is very different to a Formula One in the way it's structured. You may look at it at motorsport series is different to MotoGP. You know, an IPL is different to 100 you know, though I know in formats as well, but say it's uh, 100 is modified T20 effectively, but you know, it's, it, it is different. So I think it really depends on the journey of the sport and what is the final outcome. Now, for organizations like ICC and FIFA uh, or even IOC, and I'm talking about the traditional big rights holders, right, where huge revenues actually through major events, their ultimate goal is not about increasing enterprise value right? Their ultimate goal is about actually creating more value to make their members sustainable. Because if they make their members, I mean, that should technically be the goal, you know, there's all sorts of politics that comes in between. But because ultimately, if their members are sustainable means they have to distribute less to them, which means they can invest more in grassroots, right? Because all these organizations, and, you know, I was thinking about this, I remember we used to always say, like, all these organizations are cash rich organizations, revenue is not a problem. It's actually the distribution model that's always a challenge, right? Whereas if you look at other sports, which are largely leagues, uh, you know, which are private investor boards or even like uh, different, their job is to improve enterprise value and overall stakeholder values for all stakeholders involved. You know, so it's, uh, um, and I think ultimately that's the end game. Now, what that does is that while, often uh, organizations like FIFA and ICC are, you know, criticized that you're trying to maximize your rights, but really they don't really maximize. I think they optimize to get to the outcome you want, you know. And I think uh, in uh, leagues with investor boards and stuff, you have to really look at what valuations you're getting at the end of it, you know. So it's, and so for Formula E, for example, you know, where is it that the value for the organization is coming from? We are hugely a partnerships-led business. So does it make sense for me to just go OTT? And even if there's a rights deal to be done, to put the sport behind and reduce the number of viewers or actually data, you hardly get data. So, you know, so I think it really depends on the journey. And I think for Formula E, when I joined, my assumption was create sport for OTT, young digital audience, because we've seen the fan base is younger, diverse, digital focused. But it would have reduced our sponsorship valuations massively, right? And so when I look at it and I'm like, we're a sport and this is, you know, you battle with these things every day and you try to figure out a solution, which is why it's exciting. You know, it's not one route because you think you're a younger sport. Uh, generally, if you look at the influencers, content creators that come to a sport, you know, my, my nieces get excited about that. They don't get excited about cricket influencers and content. I mean, they're Indians, but they don't follow cricket. And I'm not saying in a bad way, but I'm saying they are more to, akin to, you know, what's happening, trending. They, they, they like. But then I have to do free-to-air deals. It doesn't kind of sit right because it's like, who's actually watching free-to-air, you know? And actually, what is it delivering? There's a drop in linear audiences. 
But I know that I need to have a strategy where free to air plays an important role. So it sounds like, oh my God, this sounds like a very historic or prehistoric. But the reality is, if you ask most uh, sports right owners who are not at the top tier, even top tier, there's pressures here in the UK, right? You need to put this, Women's World Cup is a big one, right? Like you need to put, but if you put those pressures aside, I think free to air still has a role to play, you know? And, and I think um, OTT has a role to play, but it really depends on the journey of the sport and what you're trying to get to. Arti, do you think the definition of free-to-air has changed though, or is it still traditional linear is the free-to-air in that instance? Or are you now actually at a point where you see some of those streaming players or YouTubes or alike as a version of free-to-air? Obviously, seen a number of deals across the industry in different ways and shapes and forms that have lent into that approach. How do you how do you see that? Do you see they're there now or they still don't provide enough um, either insights, audience, scale, et cetera, to really be defined as a, a traditional free-to-air player? I mean, that's fast channels, right? Ultimately, it's, um, and I think, I think when you look at it, if we in the industry talk about free to air, we talk about everything, right? But again, I, coming from India, you know, where, I mean, there's generational skip. I think even my, my mom didn't do a laptop. She went from TV to mobile straight and she's older, right? Like, uh, uh, my nieces, I think TV, I'm not sure, maybe for Netflix, they'll mirror, but you know, they use their laptops or whatever, but and then I come to Europe where it's still TV, still a big platform, right? I, I think it's also mm. like the journeys in each markets are different. And I feel like Europe has been a fast adopter, Europe and UK fast adopter to certain things, but not everything. It really depends on what's driving. So in these markets, when you talk free to air, it probably still means linear. But if I go to Asia, like India or something, they will think about mobile and digital. But to come to your point, I think, Nick, the challenge with the, the fast services is, and I'll talk about the Roku deal we did because that sort of falls into that category, right? Is that it's a data. What data are you actually getting? Uh, because if you're big enough as a sport, you don't care that much about that. Like, you know, you're, you're not driven by, I need this numbers to deliver this media value to my partner. So I think that is really important. But every sport has to make this transition to digital because you cannot rely on linear. And whether it's whether you're a sport that drives subscriptions or not, or whether you're a sport that delivers an audience, and maybe that's the free-to-air approach, I think it, it, it varies. But I mean, subscriptions are also a challenge nowadays, right? Like uh, they are falling massively. So, you know, the fast uh, market is quite interesting. So you, you kind of touched on it a little bit there. You're saying if you had gone in as Formula E and launched a D2C OTT platform, you probably would have lost. Uh, op opportunities through sponsorship. So when we talk about OTT, I think one of the reasons people got excited is that it was an opportunity for monetization that perhaps didn't exist any other way. But do you think, and again, maybe it's going to be different based on market by market, sports property by sports property, has OTT necessarily delivered on some of the promises um, that were not made because, you know, it's, it's a general talk. But do you feel like OTT has lived up to some of the expectations that were set sort of early on? Yeah, I mean, I always, every time I'm asked an OTT question, and I've been a believer since it started, I don't know which single sport OTT platform can survive. You know, like it's it's really hard. The one sport that I think can command this is football. You know, I think it's just in a different league, Premier League or whatever. I don't know what they do with their, uh, I know they're now going down that journey. 
And I think they have a real chance to disrupt again, you know, in this space, depending on what they launch and services they do. And I know they've been purely dependent on broadcaster services, what they do. But I think single sport OTT platforms, especially let's talk about disruptor sports, you know, because to drive the subscription values, you need avid fans, right? And right now, I think what is happening is how avid are those fans? Are we going too early? What is the right time to go on to these? And does it make sense for you to aggregate with other sports and, you know, as part of other services? Because if somebody tells me today, let's set up an OTT channel for motorsports, um, and Formula One's not part of it. I don't know which uh, things. I'm just thinking, how many fans will pay for that, right? Like you, you really have to be, you have to be honest about your chances. You will have, I have lots of people come and pitch to me saying, what about the dark markets? I'm like, actually, that's worse for us because in dark markets, nobody, the avidity is lower. You know, if in our key markets, we can't make money. The dark markets, I'm not going to put things behind a subscription wall. So I think the challenge really is like, do you know what your avid fan base is? And that avid fan base is uh, the uh, propensity to buy, right? Like, are people willing to pay to actually watch you? And a good test is when you transition stuff from um, social channels to your owned channels, you know? And even without, uh, so you, say you don't put a registration wall, then you put a reg wall. I think those tests are good to do before you actually start straight down OTT or we'll, we'll charge for a service. And I think we regularly do that but if you ask me right now, I may in two years' time, who knows what happens? You know, suddenly there are two drivers that become so big. And, you know, I know there's Formula One TV. They use it differently in different markets. In India, they've gone behind pay, for example. I mean, they've gone straight direct to consumer. From what I've heard is it's not done wonders. You know, the numbers have massively dropped from what it is. Again, that's not a key market for them. You can say it's a dark market a huge audience loss, right? Because earlier it was in Star. So it really depends on the journey and the market. It's the, how big the sport is and really the avidity in each market will probably determine whether it's successful or not. But I know WWE people talk about it and like, I, I'm still to see a sport and maybe um, you can throw some examples at me and there's NFL game pass and different things, right? Which can survive on subscription-based OTT platform. Yeah, I mean, it, sometimes it's down to expectations as well, or what are you expecting that to deliver? Because sometimes, um, I think initially, going back a few years ago, the expectation was OGT would be the magic source that would instantly lead to um, instant results. But you know, there's not just not just if you build a they will come scenario, but you also have to market it effectively. You have to change behaviors in a, in a market where media behavior is shifting quickly to social first, YouTube, et cetera. How do you differentiate to dis justify to someone to come to, to your platform, let alone to come to your platform to to pay uh, for access to, to those things? I think that's become, caught everyone a little bit by surprise how dramatic that that has been. So the fact that the NFL Game Pass has now gone into the DAZN platform to try and access uh, an audience at least engage on their platform, is it, it's an incredible test to see how well that, that plays out. Because if it plays out, <laughs> Um, the way the NFL is hoping, um, then yeah, the, the the net result will be a, a bigger audience base. And Amazon's obviously lent into that with Prime Video. They're having a whole bunch of distribution and aggregation deals in place. But it does feel like, uh, yeah, going step properly standalone is you've got to have a big runway 
to get that to a place is going to have instant threshold. Um, but Adi, I wonder, in terms of your point about you know, your approach about the partnerships model, um, I think that's pretty consistent with a lot of uh, challenger or disruptor style sports who are looking to get awareness and then and turn that into something, convert it into something. So that, that framework's fairly consistent, I think, this day and age. But also just generally, I think in sports, you said there's no, no one rinse and repeat model in sports, and that's so true. I've done sessions of that at some of our events where I'm like, trying to literally go one by one. See, this one's, this looks the same outside in and you go into the, the detail and it's not. Because Formula E was so built on partnerships when they launched, I mean, that was the, the playbook. It was the storytelling first, the deals with all the major brands who are leaning into sustainability and so forth. Do you think in any sports property, let alone Formula E and others, because it starts in that model, it's is it nearly impossible to shift it out of that because basically you've got to move the whole organization stakeholders change your entire approach i just feel like this in this day and age that is nearly impossible for anyone once you set the groundwork it you can't just pivot your approach in in the media game anyway have you been how do you feel have you about been that? attending our exact meetings yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean look um I wouldn't say it's impossible because, you know, I've thought of five different ways to do it, but it's about are the stakeholders ready for this change? Because the disruption it'll cause for the disruptor sports or challenger sports is there will be a shift, this transition in three years, you know, three or four years. And there are different ways to do it, actually. There are different ways. It's like uh, uh, for us, for example, we started so internationally, can we just focus on one region, get more deals, you know, like can... I mean, most sports, if you look at it, they have two or three strong, even Formula One started Europe, MotoGP Europe, you know, cricket, you can say, you know, the Commonwealth and it's probably stayed there. It may expand to US. I know there's major league and all, but I think there's so many different ways to get there. But ultimately, I do believe, Nick, that the partnerships model, which is just based on big casual fans is not sustainable, right? Ultimately, uh, you can through free to air get those fans, but the conversion has to happen. And really like, which is why I think that there is a transition period for a sport where you need to look very closely is when do you take your partners off that drug of free to air television? And you know, like all the boards are different things and it's a hard transition, but if boards do have the vision, I think you can have a five to 10 year plan to do a complete transition or sooner, depending on the awareness and fan uh, fan base growth, because I think uh, some of the pay TV um, platforms, pay TV or streaming platforms is where you'll find the engaged audiences, really. You know, the free to air is largely, especially for seasonal sport. You know, you can see World Cups engaged. I really don't know which seasonal sport. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm getting older. So my memory is like uh, is regularly and free to air scheduled, you know, a seasonal sport. So I think you'll have few matches here, but it's not like the whole sport. So it's not sustainable to stay there, right? Also, even for partnerships with the business. So I think the transition has to happen, but it is a longer road. But ultimately, I must say that we are so strong in our partnerships. I mean, stronger than many tier one sports I've seen. And so that's fine. It's working for us because many tier one sports would actually love to be in the position we are in terms of what our partners pay, you know, um, per fan. So I think uh, it's a transition and it's it's. Diff- different from me coming from where media rights was driving uh, the revenue base to media rights is supporting. And yes, it's dry- there is a revenue base, but it's playing a supporting role. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually more enjoyable in many ways. It's not like, you know, you have a set fan base. You first create the fan base, you create the awareness, you create the numbers, audience partnerships. And in certain markets, like 
I'll give you U.S. as an example, and I know I'm, you can just you can interrupt me with a question, but I think uh, the Roku example is a good one. You know, we had CBS entirely for the last three years, and they have been a fantastic partner. And we actually, over the last one year, we started talking to CBS saying, you know, as well as we do, we need a digital partner in the U.S., you know, because of the way people consume sport. And they said, go and talk and let us know where you land. Right. And we had lots of discussions with different partners. And we've landed in a really good spot now. Let's see how the next three years play out. So Roku is effectively the home of Formula E in the U.S., actually. And it's great. It's a fast channel. Actually, for me, it's an aggregator, right? It's got everything. I got a great stat that 50% of uh, Super Bowl viewers came through Roku, actually, uh, last time around. You know, they went through Roku. So it is a sports platform. They may not have acquired sports directly. And I know they're launching their uh, dedicated sports zone uh, uh, live sports zone in Jan or whatever, but we are the first sports they're experimenting with. And for the first movers advantage is great, but we still have our free to air races, three or four in CBS to get those sponsorship numbers. But also like we're going to do some cross promotions between the platforms because CBS is a premier partner of Roku where people know Roku is where. So I think there is a path to it and we are going to start doing it in two or three key territories before we transition to other ones because you have to move. Well, I love that litmus test that you put out there, which is what happens when you take your content off of social. And even if it's just making people sign up for a free login, I just started thinking like, I've got NFL Game Pass, just about anything else. The first thing I'm going to do, if I have to, I'm just going to go to YouTube. Um, and if YouTube doesn't have it, I'll search for it on Twitter. I'd probably go to both of those places before I actually probably went and signed up for another thing. So I think that's a really great sort of just like litmus test of how popular your content actually is, just, you know, anecdotally speaking from my own perspective. And that kind of, I guess, leads into the question I wanted to ask about sort of how you balance that reach versus, you know, direct revenue opportunities, particularly as a disruptor sport. And it, it sounds like you probably fall more on the reach end, at least where you guys currently are in terms of building that fan base. Would you say that's an accurate assumption in terms of how you balance those two? I think so. I mean, I think uh, I would hate to give up a revenue opportunity. Like, you know, I love a good negotiation. So um, it's not like, yeah, come give us a reach and whatever. I think it's a balancing act. And ultimately you start with revenue discussions, but it's the point is, if the revenue is not to the standards you want, okay, what else can you give? Or certain markets, actually, the reach is so important that we we can we can give up the revenue. So it really depends on the platform, the market, um, and also the fan growth and awareness that we've achieved there. Uh, we've got some, to be honest, in some of the key markets, we've got some pretty strong deals, I would say, you know, uh, for a disruptor sport, even for a tier one sport, I think they're pretty good. Uh, in certain other markets, where tier one sports would pay other markets. I mean, we may go free. Uh, we may get content for free. So it's it's a balance. But I would say uh, when I came in, this focus was largely on reach, but I think it's shifting to a mix now, the right mix. We should know. I mean, if you ask me next season, I will know exactly which is my reach market, which is my uh, revenue market. I will know that what I'm trying to achieve and what the mix I need to get there. So it's taken me three years to get there. You know, I finally realized how to do my jobs. <laughs> So that 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 leads a little bit directly into the next question I was going to ask, and you kind of touched a little bit with the U.S. what you're doing with Roku, um, as well as CBS, kind of having those two touch points. You know, as you're going through those market by markets, how much are you looking at? Okay, one market might be a reach market versus another might be a revenue market. How much of it is? Each one's a blank slate, and we're going to go in there with you know an open mind to anything. Versus, we've got this here, we've got this here. Like, is there a difference between each individual market or each individual? individual region that you're going after? 
Yeah, I mean, again, um, great question, Chris. I think uh, for us, we also have to map out what are our key markets for our stakeholders and where do they put their value over there, you know? So our key stakeholders for them, the teams, manufacturers, partners, for them, you know, definitely, it's a varied lot, right? So some people say these two markets, but we've mapped it out largely. You know, we've got uh, three or four countries in Europe, UK, USA, China is big for some of them. You can imagine, you know, EV manufacturers, uh, big growth markets like Brazil, India, Japan always do well, you know, Mexico. So, but there are, I would say some are where, I would target because the fan base is bigger for Formula E. For me, they are reach and revenue markets. In certain other markets where the fan base is not so big, I would just focus on the reach and the re- revenue will come eventually. Once we start racing there, we're having races there. So there are markets, and I'll say where we probably won't go for the next five years. And I, without naming them, I, I mean, we could experiment there, right? Markets which don't figure in these top 10 markets. If I'm doing deal in certain market. I wouldn't care about free to air there. I could do something with the pay TV channel, but the fan base there has to be important as well, right? Like they need to care about Formula E. So we do have markets where we can experiment, but ultimately it really depends. Do we have a fan base there to allow us to have market competition there? Or if we only have one player we are talking to, you know, that's hard then. I'm curious, Arthi, you talked about, um, obviously we've talked a little bit about the reach versus revenue conversation and partnerships led approach. I'm curious what your relationship or how you work with, therefore, your sponsorship partnerships team then, because um, data, you talked about the fact that some of the fast uh, gives you access to some data and insights that you may not get through traditional linear, obviously. Um, What information do you need to be getting from some of those partners um, to help service the partnerships uh, team? And how much do you need that data from the broadcast side? Or can you lean into, say, your social media audience demographics to determine, okay, well, this is our audience demo. Um, it's probably transferable to your linear and, and other partnerships, could, you know, give or take a couple of years. Uh, how, how do you play with that, uh, that approach and, and try to understand your audience and then how that can help the partnerships team? Yeah, I think actually for the partnerships team, the linear ones are easier to get because we have we have data from uh, we have an agency we work with and they get data from everybody. So we it's basically watch time, right? What's the watch time? Because that will give exposure for media value for the different brands. Yeah. And ultimately, if through our fast channels, we get it, it won't be public knowledge. That's different. So you won't have a Nielsen getting that data. You won't have, you know, a Bob or, uh, you know, anybody getting that data. So I think. Uh, with them, it's really them sharing it with us and we have to kind of anonymize it and say this has come from the source, but it's watch time. It's effectively, and ratings are watch time. I know it's a market share as well and average time, but it is watch time. It's a stickability of the product and how long people have watched it for. I think that's what matters. So I do want to take us in a slightly different direction. Uh, it's not one that we haven't already touched on a little bit, but you talked about your background at the ICC, talked about you're your headed out there with your daughter to the Cricket World Cup here um, in just a little over a week's time. You know, cricket is obviously growing massively in popularity. We see the numbers coming out for the IPL and their latest broadcast deals. Um, you know, the UK, they've got the, the introduction of the 100. And then, although I'm curious to see what it does long term, you've got things like the um, Major League Cricket being introduced in the USA. You know, how, what have you seen perhaps in the last couple of years with cricket that's perhaps caught your eye in terms of some of its growth and its development, whether that's directly with the IPL or the something in the ICC or even what it's doing more internationally? 
I think it's really the mushrooming of all sorts of leagues, you know, and I get calls still, though I've left cricket, I still get calls from people saying, we want to set up this league, you know, can we have some advice? And my advice is don't, because actually it seems like great value. It seems like, wow, let's just set up a league, get the, but ultimately only two or three will survive, right? The calendar is so cramped. And I think the difference between football, where you have multiple leagues that can sustain is something's got to give, right? And, you know, honestly, when I was at the ICC, this was a debate. First of all, there are different formats of cricket when it's international versus leagues. You know, we used to call it domestic cricket. How do you balance this out? And if you look at it, the way it's going to happen is ultimately, I mean, the World Cup, it'll be interesting to see in eight years' time, what does that, what does it mean? You know, like I think it's a bit like football, you know, the bilaterals are become friendlies and then there's a the big World Cup, right? So I don't think... ICC events will go down in value. I think those are still pinnacle events. They will stay up. I think the challenges, and this is this was going to play out and it has started to play out, is like when you have um, team ownerships across multiple different leagues, right? You know, so you have these team owners spread across, whether you see uh, what's happening with Kolkata Knight Riders, you know, in three or four different leagues. Similarly with Delhi, Chennai, you know, they're, they're just going across different Mumbai Indians are doing the same. So there's like, actually, where does the power lie in the in cricket ecosystem? You know, does it lie with the governing bodies? Is it the league owners? So who's actually the feeder system to international cricket also? Earlier, it was a domestic league. So in India, there was Ranji Trophy here. There was county cricket that was providing that uh, the players up there. So, you know, it was really important for people to go, to go through that. But even in the first um, look at IPL, you know, I mean, now there are people who perform created IPL and they go straight into national selection. So it's not necessary to play domestic cricket. And more and more domestic cricket, bilateral cricket, I just think something's got to give because people don't have the value of ITC events and big cricket leagues. And I say big with that's a huge, I mean, I, I wouldn't even call 100 a big cricket league yet, right? Like, um, is IPL and maybe one other league. You know, I don't know how BBL will, I know they've shifted the calendar and stuff a bit. I don't know where others can survive, you know. So it was interesting. There was an international T20 league in Dubai and there was the uh, South Africa league at the same time. Now, South Africa did a deal with Viacom in India and ILT20 did a deal with Z, uh, which is now part of Sony. It's the merger will be announced later. In terms of actual numbers, you'll see that the Z one was 10 times bigger, but people actually said the South Africa one was more valuable and has uh, probably will stay on longer because in South Africa, you can see what's happening. You know, players are going to leave anyway. So it's, it's, it's a tough one, but it really depends on if these leagues are set up on strong structures that can sustain them or it's just like five years and then collapse because they've just taken media rights deals, you know, like, okay, five years. I don't know. I, I just don't, I really don't see, and this is going to be, this is a challenge because boards need bilateral cricket. That's got the money. But when the money stops coming in, like there's only finite money, you know, we see the rights going up for ICC, but somewhere else it's going to come down. Right. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the future for cricket, if you ask me when I was at the ICC and I joined 2007, we did the first world T20 world cup. Right. And at that point, it was like, oh, my God, cricket's dying. Oh, yeah, cricket, this, that. And suddenly T20 happened, IPL happened. But I think IPLs had such a huge positive impact on the growth of cricket. It's actually in India, it saved cricket from, cricket is the number one to number 10 sport. But at some point, there was a danger of it eroding, you know. So being just one to five and then football coming in. But IPLs just changed the game. It's becoming bigger every mm -hmm. year.
Yeah, I remember, I guess a similar conversation we all had with Formula One for a while there as well, when it went through that period sort of post-Ernie, uh, post-Bernie, uh, post oh, yeah. uh, where basically it was um, no social media channels, no investment in digital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, what's going to happen? It's going all, all doom and gloom. And then it's all turned around pretty pretty quickly in, and in their favor since. We've talked about the events-based approach, ICC's events standing uh, strong, which makes a lot of sense. IPL, I mean, the money is incredible. That you know, it was over double, one hundred and twenty percent increase in media rights uh, off the charts. Your your experience through the Indian market, did you see that sort of level of investment coming um, from a long way away, or is that something that sort of even caught you by surprise to see this mm. this this next rights cycle, this current rights cycle, just blow everyone out of the water at the scale that it happened and do you think it's going to continue mm. do you think the market's going to continue because our average revenue per per fan is actually pretty low still comparatively because of the economics of the marketplace do you think it's going to continue to grow at that sort of at that scale mm. you know what i mean like i also icc events i would say and ipl to some extent are very strategic buys for organizations as well you know like um some sports buyers, you know, the revenues, some people say, and, you know, the minute people, broadcasters buy, they start talking and saying, ah, how can we get more out of this? You know, this happens because I've been on the other side and I've seen it. You know, the big deals are announced and the next day they want to renegotiate contracts because it's like, oh, God, we've paid too much, but they had to. I think the difference I see, Nick, is that for many years in India, there wasn't really strong market competition. Actually, if you see when um, when I joined the ICC 2007 uh, we closed the first billion dollar deal in cricket. It was unheard of then. It was ESPN Star Sports. But really, the other competitor was Nimbus. And there was like, there wasn't really that huge competition. There was, there was 10 sports, but, uh, you know, you, everybody knew that they're not going to put in that much money. But if you look at it now, there are three big players, actually big players, you know. So there's this Z-Sony, you know, conglomerate. There is Viacom, which is huge. And you've seen the money they put in. And they will want to make this a success any which way. And their star, Disney. So, you know, there's actually three big players. And I think market competition changes the dynamics hugely. So sometimes the prices that are paid are not directly related to revenue strategic market games, right? On the other hand, if you look at Reliance uh, or Viacom, you know, they actually own the mobile ecosystem in the country as well. So they can also, I mean, you've seen how they change the narrative free give it free, 32 million watching the IPL final. When I remember when I was at the ICC, we were like 23.5 concurrent of India, Pakistan. Who knows what's going to happen now? Because obviously, because they've changed the game, subscriptions for Star or Disney fell down. Now they're going free on mobile, you know. So uh, if you ask me the question, the Indian economy is becoming stronger. You know, the world is going through a recession and I don't know how much it's impacted there and I haven't really, but I think that the Indian economy is becoming stronger. And I do feel cricket does deliver at some point you know the strategic value of cricket the live sport and bringing in this entertainment and everything it does deliver in another four years will the rights value double or triple really depends on market competition what is the combination of rights because it all depends on when you're going to market who has what rights like right now you knew that star wouldn't really go for these rights you know um in the sense you knew that it's going to just because you know they they've got these big properties somebody lacks this domestic cricket property who needs to get it so i think it's really about your timing of your tenders because these are all done on tenders is so important and uh you need to hit the market at the right time and i think both icc and bcc have done really well with the way the timing uh, they've hit the market, you know, they've actually spoken to broadcasters and listened to them, which often rights holders don't do, you know, they just unilaterally take decisions. So I think 
well done to both teams for actually changing the game so much. But now it's about keeping these broadcasters happy as well, because it's a lot of money being paid. So I think there has to be some leeway given and certain, you know, like not compliance all the time. You have to look after them and make sure that their business is successful because then they'll bid more next time. With India, it's such a massive country that, you know, people probably look at it as, as a massive opportunity. But do you think that for other sports that want to come into the marketplace, is there, is, do you think it is, is cricket so popular there's not room for another major sport or if there was another sport trying to get their foothold there is there anything in particular you would sort of say would be like best tips to have i remember when we spoke to sanjar gupta at star saying i think they had like a 3a approach which was awareness just make people even aware that they could stream then build an affinity to the product itself and then you actually went to acquisition where you know there's almost this three-step process and even then to nick's point it, it wasn't a very high price point in terms of getting people to subscribe but there's almost this 3A approach that they had in terms of actually trying to get people on board, you know, for someone that's trying to enter the market, should they be optimistic? Because there's a lot of reason, you know, there's a several, you know, over a billion reasons to be optimistic, but is that, is that realistic? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, China and India are two markets, you look at, wow, how do we crack this? China, I remember cricket when I was at the, it was like China and they finally dropped China, thank God, because, you know, it's just too, but I think like, uh, and I don't know, it's probably true for most countries, but in India, nothing sells like an Indian, right? Like, I think like, and uh, I'm saying this, like that affinity and China was similar, right? Like with the NBA and stuff, you know, the, I think the real chance for any sport to enter India, and I know Premier League's done well in many ways because it's an urban sport, right? It's not gone to rural. I mean, imagine if it's all about the metro cities and I know they've got like Hindi as the language and stuff now. But it's largely in the big cities, right? That people, because they, it's cool. I watch Premier League. Actually, I'm not interested in cricket. They may secretly be watching IPL. But I think the thing is, Olympics, for example, in India, and I don't know who had the rights. And that was the year when uh, these female athletes from India, they always do well at the Olympics. Is like those moments got great viewership and narrative, right? Like, so I know we say badminton league, but if it's a truly international sport coming to India, Having an Indian team, but Indian athletes who perform well is actually really good. So I don't know how you get there, but then there's more chances of you converting because you are following the story of an athlete, right? You're following the story of their aspirations and different things, which is why IPL has become so big. I mean, the, I remember when IPL started, we used, to, um, we used to talk to BCCI and they were like, India wins every day, actually, you know, because there were Indian stars in each, and which is why... The ratings are consistent. It may not hit huge numbers like India, Pakistan, and you know the final will, but they consistently deliver ratings each match. Whereas at ICC events, the India matches will be like this, the others will be lower. So I think that then your narrative has to be, even if you have a really strong sport, what is the hook to create that awareness? And following Sanjog's example, which is quite right, it's awareness, uh, avidity, or uh, you know he was talking about affinity, and then that sport starts to generate revenues. One thing that really um, has struck me over the last couple of years that we've seen India explode as a market is um, when we were in Singapore for our Asia, Asia, Asia APAC event, we heard about the Chinese market and the fact that in China, basically, I think football-based subscriptions was non-existent. It was like 10, it was a, it was a few million uh, total turnover per annum on subscriptions. Everything else is advertising-led or um, open open access, basically, and that's that's the approach across those markets. But yet on the Western side, we've seen such a focus on subscription, subscription, subscription. 
it feels like maybe we've been spending the wrong wrong time all these years across the Western markets trying to make something work where actually we've been closing a door on a whole audience base that has been willing to give at least time, which is monetizable to broadcasters. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's even, you talked about the great example with the IPL and the fact that it's becoming more and more open again, because there's so much competition drive, driving those things. One question I did have for you, that's just more of a comment than anything else. But uh, one question I did have for you is you mentioned briefly before that cricket had a bit of a moment that it came through and now is, is flying with potentially a football in India, maybe as a chance to, to, to move forward. I remember IMG went in, gosh, I think over a decade ago now, with a deal with the uh, AIFF, the Inter- Indian Football Federation. I'm just curious, how, how from, from what you know about the Indian market, how is the is Super League, Indian Super League now placed? Is it, is it not, I mean, I haven't heard of any other sports properties. You know, NBA's invested a lot of time and effort into that market as well. La Liga did a deal for Facebook in that market as well, trying to get some cut through. Has football got its place? I mean, when we talked to Sandjogger, was kabaddi or cricket, and that was uh, that was yeah, about it. Um, I know. What's your take? I on mean, that? Uh, the ISL Indian Super League actually Star was quite. I'm not sure directly invested in it, but they kind of and it was actually IMG Reliance, so there was a Reliance thing. Mm. Yes, um, yeah. it's it's timely. I don't know. Yesterday or day before, uh, I was reading an article, and it said that. What's happened with the Indian Super League is, and this is maybe it's just disappeared off my feet, depends on what I see. I see more motorsports now. But I think it the first three years or four years were the honeymoon period where it got a title sponsor, homegrown league. You know, there was big support and you had like uh, um, players. I mean, you had people like Ganguly, Virat Kohli buying in Bollywood stars, etc., and I think after that, they tried to, ex- and you had international stars coming into play. So people were curious and watching. And then there was an expansion of the calendar that happened at some point. And I think now the sponsorship also I'm hearing is a struggle because Hero has gone out and they haven't found. So I think that momentum wasn't capitalized on. But, you know, I'm the wrong person. I need to read more about it. But I don't actually read as much about it as I used to, you know, that about the Mm. disruption it was creating ISL. So um, it's it's an interesting case study to actually follow and see like what's happened and where it's going. But from what I gather, it's kind of gone a little downhill and maybe it's just because I don't know what the strategy was to keep keep it going. And I don't know whether IMG is still involved, Reliance, but maybe they are. So I quickly looked to while you were talking and it uh, looks like IMG might have, from one email, one article I pulled up that IMG might have pulled out of it a few years ago after about five years in where, and Reliance kept kept on with it. So that might be one of the reasons if IMG weren't behind it from that point onwards, it would be unlikely they would have had the, the, the impetus in the same fashion. But you know, the- I mean, we're talking about that, Nick, I've seen so many leagues in India come up. There's uh, somebody which my, my, he's kind of my cousin because of, Davos, everybody in Davos's cousins, you know, very small uh, little, but he, uh, he's a Bollywood actor, but he has started something called the Pro Panja League. Panja is arm wrestling and it's like a local sport, you know, so obviously based on Kabaddi, so I, I don't know how well it's doing when I see him, I'll, I'll ask him, but there's also, there was a volleyball league that was started. So there are all these leagues, homegrown leagues, but I think what Kabaddi has done to star, and I, I know Sanjo, he loves that it's a homegrown property, is that the that broadcaster actually owned it. It reinvented the game slightly. They presented it in a different way. You know, they modernized it and they created more interest in, around it. So, uh, and again, it won't go up to cricket levels, but it's a good for that level, the return. I don't know what they're getting. The ratings were not bad, actually. They're pretty good compared to other international sports that are streamed, uh, are broadcast in India. Definitely helps if you've got a big broadcaster behind yeah. you. That's always yeah. a, good, a, good, yeah. a good point to start. Yeah. 
I do, I do have one last question, just speaking about broadcast innovation and something that came out, I'm sure you've seen as well with the uh, ICC looking to distribute content via vertical uh, video format for the upcoming World Cup. You know, with things like that, you know, you can speak to it more generally whether or not. Do you think things like vertical video are, are something that can succeed? Do you think it's sport dependent? I could certainly see some sports are in better shape just because of the nature of the game to make that work. But do you think things like that are the type of necessary steps, something like cricket need to do to continue to stay up to pace with some of the other sports? Yeah, I mean, again, I think Star has been fantastic. And I think that's happened because Disney Star said, we'll carry that output and we'll take it out, right? Like, so ultimately, I remember the 2015 World Cup uh, having a chat with Sanjog and uh, they were quite keen to do some games in 4K. So we worked with them and few games we did as 4K games actually because they were experimenting with that, right? So ultimately, if you have enough platforms to carry, I think that the sports rights holder does do it, but they look at costs and what's the, uh, what and the market you're serving, you know? Like, so if Disney Hotstar can take that property, take the ver- vertical videos and serve it to the fans, I think that's great. And I think that's the plan during the World Cup for them to do. So, and I think there, I've seen vertical videos tried previously, but not at the scale that they are going to do, you know, which is like um, split screens and different things. Because uh, Ajesh, who actually heads ICC TV, because uh, that was sort of, that was my area that I looked after. I exchanged a few emails. I was like, what's happening? And they are planning to do some really cool things. So I think, again, I think innovation is great, but as long as there's a huge audience for it, because sometimes we just do tech, techie things without like thinking, this is cool, but really, is the audience really grabbing onto it? So. For sure. Well, Artie, you know, there's lots more we could talk about, but I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about a range of different topics from, you know, distributors or sorry, disruptor sports to cricket to India. You know, it's been a really enjoyable conversation and hopefully we get to speak to you soon. Thank you so much. And I hope that I have an extinguished career after this, you know, after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I will will use that forever. I love the line, actually. It's a great line. So thanks for that, Chris. All good. <laughs> Chris will never live that down. That's going to be written up on the, nope. his uh, quote wall <laughs> somewhere. But Lati, thanks so much for joining. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.